0: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit truegreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed.
1: It's Sunday, February 24th. I'm Margaret Brennan and this is Face the Nation. As North Korean leader Kim Jong Un and President Trump prepare for a second summit, speculation about Special Counsel Robert Mueller's report intensifies. President Trump reached his conclusion the day the investigation was opened. And he's sticking to it.
2: It's one of the greatest hoaxes ever perpetrated on this country.
1: But a former top advisor to the president predicts the report will trigger, quote, a real meat grinder.
3: I think that 2019 is going to be the most vitriolic year in American politics since before the Civil War.
1: We'll talk to a Republican on the Senate Intelligence Committee, Missouri's Roy Blunt. And we'll ask Massachusetts Democrat Ed Markey, a key voice on North Korea policy in the Senate, about the prospects for any real results out of that summit with Kim Jong-un. And as administration officials assess what funds can be used for the president's border emergency, House Democrats try to stop it. Illinois Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger joins us. He's just back from National Guard Service at the border. We'll also check in with two Democratic governors who oppose the president's emergency to build his wall. We got to bust through some walls to make changes. New Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham and likely 2020 presidential candidate Washington Governor Jay Inslee. All of that and more ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. With the president headed to Vietnam this week, the release of the Mueller report appears to be on hold. But speculation about what's in that report continues. Yesterday, CBS News correspondent Seth Doan spoke with former White House chief strategist Steve Bannon near the Vatican. Bannon, a critic of Pope Francis, was on the sidelines of the Papal Summit on Sex Abuse. We'll have a report on that conference later, but first... Seth questions Steve Bannon about the Mueller investigation.
3: I was uh, someone that uh, told the president many, many times that uh, he should not fire James Comey, uh, that I thought that the, this collusion investigation uh, was a lot of nonsense and was going to come to naught. Now, I happen to think that the president of the United States, he had full rights and authority to fire Comey. Uh, I think you'll see a lot of stuff in the Mueller report. I believe that a deal with potential obstruction of justice, and I think it'll come down to decisions. Uh, that people think whether the president of the United States, his chief law enforcement officer, has the right to make those decisions or not. But uh, I, I, I've been pretty adamant that I, the collusion thing to me was always uh, essentially a nothing burger and that the Comey investigation
4: should have just played out. Looking ahead to campaign 2020, do you think President Trump will see a primary contender?
3: Oh definitely. I think definitely from the from the center from the from the Republican Party moderates and from the left of the Republican Party can you uh, stand up to that? I think it'll be symbolic. Mm-hmm. I don't think it'll be serious. I think we have to get through 2019. I think the next 90 days to 4 months is going to be a real meat grinder. I think In the what pres- ways? you have the Mueller report coming out. You have what's happening on this Investigation on the inaugural committee, you have the Southern District of New York, you have other investigations going on. I mean, the pressure on the president is coming from many different angles. I think you've already seen it from uh, uh, what the Democrats, some of these reports they, uh, they've been dropping here without telling anybody. I think that now that they control the House, they can weaponize uh, this, they can weaponize the Mueller report. I think that 2019 is going to be the most vitriolic year in American politics since before the Civil War. And I include Vietnam in that. I think, we're in for, I think we're in for a very nasty 2019. I think what comes down the other side of that, then you can position yourself for uh, 2020.
4: And you think the president can come out of 2019 in a much weaker position? No, I
3: think he comes out in a much more battle-hardened position. I think it's going to be a very tough four or five months for the president. I think it's for the team around him, but I think it'll, be very, I think it'll get him very focused. Do you
4: think the RNC is doing enough to protect Mr. Trump?
3: Well, I, I think the RNC is, I, look, I had a good experience with the RNC during the campaign. I'm a little disappointed in 2018. I think the focus should have been on the House. I think there's no reason we should have lost the House. I think the RNC and the Trump campaign should have maniacally focused on the House to make sure we weren't in the situation now with these investigations and with uh, the ability to weaponize the, the Mueller report. So they have to get better than they were in 18, because 18, I think they let the president down. they got to get better for 20, and I think every indication they, they are.
1: Bannon also said that as of now, he has, quote, zero doubt that the president will run again. But he stressed that we are about to enter an extraordinary time in American politics. We begin with Missouri Republican Senator Roy Blunt, who sits on the Intelligence Committee, which has been conducting their own investigation into Russian meddling in the 2016 campaign. Uh, It certainly feels extraordinary, Senator, uh, in terms of the time we are in. Uh, But you heard Steve in there say that he thinks the meat of this Mueller report is going to be about obstruction of justice. Have you felt any pressure from the president when it comes to the Senate investigation?
5: Have not. And actually, because we have been involved in that investigation now for almost two years, I think we've most of the members on the Intelligence Committee have uh, been very thoughtful in the way they approach both the president and the administration on this issue. I think the pressure from the president is the same pressure we all feel, which is let's get this over with. Uh, It would have been the reason not to slow down the investigation as Mr. Bannon said, uh, to change the leaders. But at the same time, when you look at how uh, Director Comey had handled things the previous year with the Clinton investigation, the determination, I'm going to say that she did a lot of bad things, but none of them are uh, worthy of uh, indictment. One of those two things was a mistake, but probably the biggest mistake was not reporting directly to uh, the attorney general rather than to take this new um, obligation on himself to decide what was right and what was wrong. So I understand that, but I've always been of the view that anything that slows down the investigation is not a good thing, that we need to get the facts out there, get this behind us in a way that people thought that anybody that should have been talked to was talked to, any question that should have been asked uh, was asked. And we've been trying to do that in the Senate uh, committee, I think in a very appropriate way. And remember, Cohen. who will be testifying both to our committee privately and the House, I think, publicly next week. One of the charges against him was lying to Senate investigators uh, when he was asked questions, and that's totally unacceptable.
1: So he lied last time to Congress. He's admitted to that. Why are you having him back, and why do you believe him this time?
5: Well, I don't know that we believe him this time. We'll just have to see. I think the reason you have him back is when somebody lies to Congress in an investigation like this, uh, the questions you might have asked the next 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 witness don't get asked. Somebody you might have called doesn't get called. It's it's serious, well beyond whatever Cohen might have said, in that you misdirect uh, the investigation. That's why it's so important that uh, those kinds of charges be taken. Uh, very seriously, and obviously they are, and he's going to go to jail because of it. Do
1: you have any concerns that your investigation is too narrow? I mean, Michael Cohen is now working with Manhattan prosecutors on some alleged financial crimes and questions about inaugural committee, which, as you heard Steve Bannon says, is the bigger issue, he thinks.
5: Well, I I think, Margaret, the problem with all these investigations, which is why we don't do that totally independent special counsel anymore, Democrats and Republicans, let that lapse, is not that they're too narrow, but they get too broad. I'm not sure that uh, George Washington's expense account could stand up against the entire force of the federal government if you looked at everything uh, related to everything, as opposed uh, to really focusing on what was supposed to be the charge here, which is collusion. Our chairman, Chairman Burr, said two or three weeks ago that we have so far found no evidence of collusion. And you can see everybody backpedaling now, House and Senate both, on the idea collusion is going to be in the report they want to come up with lots of other things that um, i think are going to be much more arguable than a pure finding of collusion would have been because that i don't think an that's interview there was
1: cbs news and it was the, the, the comment from senator burr was if it was written now there was no evidence of collusion but as you say your right. your committee's still investigating
5: we we are still and, and you know we'd like to have frankly a little more access to the Mueller uh, investigation before we come to a final conclusion his report will help us write our final report. We've given uh, Mueller full access to all of our interviews, all of our investigation. We haven't had that reciprocated, and so we'll soon find out what else is out there that we might not know about.
1: Well, on that report, uh, the House Intel chairman, uh, Adam Schiff, told ABC this morning that Democrats are going to subpoena that Mueller report if it is not made public and to expect that the special counsel will be called to testify. Should we expect him to testify in front of the Senate? and, and- Can you actually enforce a subpoena to get the Justice Department to do something that they refused to do in the first place?
5: I don't know that you can. And, uh, you know, uh, the new attorney general, Bill Barr, was very specific on this when asked uh, during his confirmation what should happen, what should be released. What shouldn't be released? Uh, Should you release things you find out that don't lead to an indictment or might not lead to an indictment in the future? Should you release things uh, that people did that are merely embarrassing? You know, again, the weight of the government here is very strong, and people need to think about that when they begin to demand. uh, We need to know whatever you found out, whether it led anywhere or not.
1: And we should expect Mueller to testify before your committee in public?
5: I think we'll have to wait and see what's in the report.
1: I want to also ask you about this declaration of the national emergency that the president made. Right. Um, do you think Republican leadership will, in the Senate will allow for a vote on a resolution to try to block the emergency declaration? We know the House is moving forward right. with one.
5: I don't think we have a choice. I think the way that 74 law was written, uh, the House has a vote, then we have to have a vote. Uh, it's a privileged uh, motion. Uh, if it's written correctly, I don't have any reason to believe they won't write it uh, How will correctly. How I, I don't know yet. I don't know yet, I don't like the process. I don't think that the emergency declaration law was written to deal with things that the president asked the Congress to do and then the Congress didn't do. It's never been used that way before. I want to look carefully at the law. I want to hear what the president's lawyers have to say about it. I I really think the president would have been better served by, one, taking the money that he, he got in the bill he signed, two, using the transfer authority he had. And I am absolutely confident that those two amounts of money would be more money than could be spent between now and September the 30th. That's I think practically, it's an unfortunate uh, decision. That's
1: practically speaking. But in terms of clarifying what you just said, are you saying it is possible that what the president declared is unconstitutional?
5: No. No. You believe
1: he has full authorities to do this, to bypass the power of the purse strings with Congress to achieve a policy outcome that Congress refused to deliver on?
5: No, I I think there is a likelihood that that he is within the law that Congress passed. Uh, But, you know, that was long before I got to the Congress. I haven't – no president has used that law this way before. Uh, and um, I, I think we're going to have to evaluate whether this is really the intention of an emergency. Is it really an emergency if, again, the president asked the Congress to do it and they fail to? Uh, that's different than the way this law has been used in the past.
1: So you could vote to try to block the president from moving forward with this emergency. You just haven't decided yet. Is that fair?
5: I think that's fair. I think that's fair. It's also fair to understand that the president says he'll veto whatever right. passes the House and Senate. And uh, so this will be decided in the courts. Uh, I think it's highly unlikely that the veto would be uh, overridden in the House and probably not overridden in the Senate, either one. And so it's going to be decided in the courts. And uh, it's I think it's a fairly it's a significant court decision.
1: Senator, thank you very much.
5: By the way, let me say on this. I do agree with what the president is trying to do here. I just Mm -hmm. think there is a more likely way to get it done.
1: Uh, And it's an important conversation about uh, how our government functions. So I want to turn now to a Massachusetts Democrat, Senator Ed Markey, who is the top uh, Democrat on the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee responsible for U.S. policy on North Korea. But before we get there, I'd like you to weigh in on this, this declaration of a national emergency. Is Congress powerless to stop the president?
6: Uh, It's a clear usurpation of um, congressional authority, Um, there will be a resolution of disapproval, which most likely will pass in the House of Representatives this week. Then it will come over to the United States Senate. It's uncertain whether there are enough.
1: Well, the president says he's going to veto it.
6: And then even if there are a small handful of Republicans who are willing to vote uh, for that resolution of disapproval, the president says that he's going to veto it. And then um, it will come back to the House and Senate. And I believe it's highly unlikely Uh, that there will be two thirds of the House and Senate who will vote that way, given uh, the Mm -hmm. base support of the Republican Party for President Trump and his actions. And then it will go to the courts. And I think in the courts, we're going to have a very strong case uh, that this is an unconstitutional action by the president Uh, in uh, usurping an authority which was deliberately built into the Constitution by the Founding Fathers to ensure that there was a separation of powers, that there was a check and balance on a president so that they could not act unilaterally.
1: And that is a bigger point, I think, for, for viewers to understand that this seems all procedural, bureaucratic talk in Washington, but that bigger purpose of how our government is supposed to function and how it is, is the question here. In the past, under President Obama, you were supportive of his use of executive authority on a number of different fronts, including immigration. Do you regret that now, and why is it different what President Trump is, how he's using it?
6: The clear difference here is that um, the Congress, House and Senate, Democrats and Republicans just reached an agreement on funding for border security. They just finished it and they sent it to the president. Uh, the president cannot use uh, his executive authority, his emergency authority, uh, when none exist, uh, when Congress just finished acting on it, when they provided money for the president to uh, provide additional uh, security along the border. So Uh, No, this is this is a new area that the president, which President Trump has now entered. Uh, It's not Hurricane Katrina. Uh, It's not uh, after 9-11. This is something quite substantial, which would have precedential value when a Democrat is president. Uh, And I think Republicans should be very, very cautious Uh, in allowing for President Trump to take this authority because it would lead to a very significant diminution of the authority of the Congress in the future uh, when any president, Democrat or Republican, uh, seek to act.
1: North Korea, uh, as we said, uh, you watch Asia policy very carefully here. A number of leading national security-minded Democrats have released a letter saying that the administration is just not sharing information at all on the diplomacy underway. What are your thoughts on that? What what do you need to know?
6: Well, right now, uh, it's pretty clear that Kim wants to have a personal meeting with Trump uh, with hopes that he can, in fact, elicit concessions from uh, President Trump that otherwise might not be possible if it was just our diplomats talking one-on-one. So I think there's apprehension, in fact, amongst um, President Trump's own diplomats heading into this summit. Uh, Nothing is clear. uh, And I think as a result, um, we could run the risk uh, that Kim is given concessions which are not accompanied by real concessions that the United States is receiving uh, in return from uh, Kim and his regime.
1: You're saying the president's going to get played.
6: I think that uh, he has to be very careful going in. Uh, Specifically,
1: what does that mean? What is Congress most concerned about? Is it troops on the peninsula? The president has said he's not looking to withdraw them.
6: Well, um, he's looking for a declaration to the end of the Korean War. He's looking for other concessions. But I think that uh, in order to be sure that this summit uh, is, in fact, successful, the president should first uh, return with a codification of the freezing of the missile program and uh, nuclear program in North Korea, that testing should not continue. Second, that there should be a verifiable uh, program of inspection of the entire nuclear program in North Korea. And third, uh, that there should be a roadmap which is put in place to ensure uh, that no concessions made by the United States for example, in lifting of sanctions, occurs without verifiable uh, evidence that Kim is complying step by step with the denuclearization of North Korea.
1: Very quickly, is there a risk to Democrats weaponizing the Mueller report, as Bannon accused Democrats of doing?
6: Um, The Democrats have a responsibility to make sure that there was not a compromise of the presidential election of 2016. Uh, If the attorney general takes the Mueller report and then sanitizes it uh, and releases that as the answer to a comprehensive investigation, uh, then I think the Democrats in the House and Senate, along with Republicans, have a responsibility to ensure that the American people know what happened in 2016. What was the relationship between the Trump campaign and the Russian government? Was there any subsequent relationship uh, in the post-election period? We don't know the answers to those questions. The Mueller report potentially gives us those answers. And it's going to be critical that the American public knows what happened in 2016. Right now, everything rides on that Mueller report. And the attorney general, William Barr, not sanitizing it in a way that is not transparent to the public. And the Congress, the Democrats, have a responsibility to do that job.
1: Senator Markey, thank you very much. Thank you. And we will be right back.
2: Are you having trouble sleeping? NFL players have been coached. Blue light from smart devices, it can affect your sleep. They'll even wear blue blocker glasses in the evening for improved sleep. Others will try tart cherry juice and smoothies. Not only can it help fight inflammation, but to help you sleep, it's got high amounts of natural melatonin that's beneficial for sleep. The other night, my girlfriend told me I was snoring way too much and even the earplugs weren't helping. So the next day, she took me to a sleep number store because if I was snoring, at least she could get a good night's sleep on a sleep number bed. Sleep Number Beds allow you to adjust on each side to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed senses your movement and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably through the night. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping so you can know every morning how well you've slept and gain insights for your best sleep. Experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed. Find your competitive edge with proven, quality sleep from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's sleepnumber.com slash C-A-D-E-N-C-E.
1: Sleep Number. Nearly all U.S. governors are here in Washington this weekend for the National Governors Association Conference. And two Democrats join us now New Mexico's Michelle Lujan Grisham and Washington State's Jay Inslee. Welcome to Face the Nation. Great to have you here in person. Yes, thank uh, you. <laughs> Governor, uh, we played that extraordinary video of you busting through walls here. We know you do not support the president's uh, border wall and, and his emergency declaration of one. Explain to our viewers why you withdrew. Uh, the National Guard troops
7: from your border with Mexico? Because as everyone ought to be doing, right, I was on the border and I'm looking and assessing whether or not there's a real emergency or crisis. And there isn't. And the reality is, is that these troops need to be available when there is a serious issue or an emergency to deal with. Now, interestingly enough, given the fact that the president's policies along the border, including the wall, have created real issues for humanitarian efforts for asylum seekers. So I did place some National Guard, law enforcement, and most importantly, health responders to an area where they're forcing them to come across a really desolate area in the southern part of the state. Because you see there the record number of families crossing Children even though the overall apprehensions assault, is at a 50 year low. way down. But when you don't let anybody seek asylum the way that they're supposed to or you grant visas on the front end, you're asking people to take an even more dangerous journey and uh, show up and you know they voluntarily give themselves to border patrol. So we're making sure that the right kinds of services so that we don't have children who die right at those border areas in that crossing ever again in our state.
1: Governor, uh, Washington state has not brought suit against the administration. There are about 16 states that have challenged the president's uh, emergency declaration. Will you?
8: Uh, Yes. The moment that the administration jeopardizes any federal expenditure in our state, we will file suit. And we feel good about our chances to succeed. We have done so. I'm proud to be the first governor to sue to stop the Muslim ban. And we are happy, though, of judicial system to rein in this president. Look, I think it is obviously the situation here. We do not have a national security emergency. Donald Trump has a political emergency. He was unable to get Mexico to pay for his wall. He does not have the support of either party. And the entire U.S. Congress on a bipartisan basis have told him his wall is a colossal mistake. He ought to be responding to real emergencies like the forest fires. We just came from a meeting with the cabinet members asking for help with the federal government with our forest fires. And climate change is burning down our forests. That's an emergency where we ought to have the help of the federal government. We don't have it.
7: And the governor pointed out something really important. For my state, it's $150 million Mm -hmm. that we stand to lose by virtue of his national uh, declaration for an emergency that doesn't exist. And now he's harming our military assets this doesn't make any sense, and it's completely inappropriate to a state like Well, us.
1: I'll ask you more about what monies he's he is using, but Governor Inslee, you just said, though, that you would be open to declaring a national emergency based on climate. So how do you define when the president has the constitutional authority to declare an emergency if you say on the grounds of the border crisis as he deems it, it's
8: unconstitutional? So I believe under our current system of democracy, this action by this president is illegal and unconstitutional. That's what I believe. And I I think Republicans ought to stand up on their hind legs because they took an oath to the Constitution, not to Donald Trump, and reverse this decision. If that doesn't happen, we need the judicial system to reverse this decision. But ultimately, in responding to the climate change emergency, we need to work together, executive and legislative Mm -hmm. branch But if there are new rules, the Republicans have to understand that Democrats will play by whatever the rules are, particularly when it comes to climate change.
1: I'm going to come back to that because I can't let it sit there, but we are going to have to take a break. (laughs) Um, So you got a few minutes to stay with us here, both of you governors, if you would stay with us. We hope all of you will, too. We'll be back in a moment.
0: Memories make us
4: laugh and cry and sometimes cringe when we look back at our fashion choices but in between flashbacks of bowl cuts and dad jeans. Our memories are fading, and so is the old media that holds them. Hi, I'm Adam Baselogger. And I'm Nick Mako, and we're the founders of Legacy Box. Legacy Box is the easiest and safest way to preserve your family memories. Here's how it works. Fill Legacy Box with your outdated media. We professionally digitize and send them back on DVDs, thumb drive, or the cloud. Look, those forgotten home movies...
1: To face the nation. More now with two Democratic governors, New Mexico's Michelle Lujan Grisham and Washington State's Jay Inslee. Uh, let's pick up where we left off. Uh, Governor Inslee, should a president be able to declare a national emergency in pursuit of a policy goal or not?
8: Well, not if it is in clear contravention of the law passed by the United States Congress. There are provisions where emergencies require executive authority, where Congress has not been able to act, where they're out of town, and they need emergency responses. But it clearly is a contravention of basic norms of American democracy for Congress to pass an appropriation bill, identify what is legal and illegal, have the president say he just disagrees with that, and countermand the entire authority of the United States Congress. We cannot allow that to happen. And we need Republicans to show just a little bit of strength, of character for the American Constitution when they vote on this in a, in a week or so.
7: And there's not an emergency at the border, and so the 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 effort here on this political punting by Republicans and action by the president is really outrageous because they're sowing fear, racism, hate and discrimination. Uh, and it's all based on a president who has no intention of dealing with immigration policy or foreign policy in a productive way. He wants this wall and he's lying to the American people. And that is also. But outrageous. there's
1: also no sign that Congress would actually take any action on immigration reform um, at all, uh, when it comes to the the question of the National Guard troops, which you made mm-hmm. that call to pr- bring them back from the New Mexico border, obviously you're border state governor. You you see what's happening in your state. Uh, over thirty six thousand people in your state signed a petition to impeach you after you
7: made this call. So do you think that your constituents' concerns here are being heard? Well, let's talk about the folks who are impacted in the counties where we're seeing folks have to migrate because they can't do asylum for humanitarian issues. Every single elected official in that county is with us on making sure that we address the problems that they really have, communications, road maintenance, making sure that we're providing health care and health emergency services, giving them law enforcement. And in fact, Congress did do that in both this appropriation bill. And quite frankly, Congress did. They passed a dream. Act before I was elected to Congress. There's been some meaningful immigration reform. There was meaningful bipartisan uh, negotiation on the USA Act. But all that this administration said Mm -hmm. unequivocally, unless they just get a wall, they're not interested in any of those other policies. And it's really created huge burdens for states like mine to use evidence-based efforts to secure the border and to deal with real issues.
1: Governor Inslee, you are expected to potentially make a bid to be the next commander-in-chief? When are you actually going to make a decision on uh, whether you're running?
8: At the right moment, but it will be soon. Which is and when? we're happy to talk to you. Just at the right moment, it will be soon. I
1: think you said weeks, not months.
8: Uh, we're coming up to another week. Stay we tuned. We are, certainly.
1: Are you <laughs> Look, expecting it this week?
8: Uh, it could be as soon as that. And what we are seeing right now, and I'm, I've been pleased by what I've been hearing across the country, that people do want a president that will act on a real emergency, which is climate change. We're very proud of our New Mexico governor who's building a clean energy economy to respond to a real emergency, which is climate change. Mm-hmm. But she and the other governors, look, we're fighting real emergencies, the forest fires that are consuming the western United States. They need a president who will rally the nation to a clean energy economy, right. jobs by the millions, and save this country from that, uh, from that damage.
1: Governors, thank you very much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. And we're going to turn now to Illinois Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger, who's in Chicago, but he is just freshly back from the border. He was serving with the Air National Guard uh, at the border where he was flying surveillance missions out of Tucson, Arizona. Uh, Congressman, uh, this wasn't your first border deployment. It's the first one under the national emergency. Does it constitute a national emergency?
9: Yeah, I think it does. You know, I I went down there kind of undecided. You know, I I put on my lieutenant colonel hat, was apolitical, but obviously I'm looking at this, getting the information I can. And I think if this was just an issue of immigration, it wouldn't constitute a national emergency. But what I saw was really disturbing. Um, Let me give you just a couple quick examples. And I was just a small part of all the operations that were being done. We found at one point a woman hunkered down in the desert. Because her coyotes who brought her over deserted her because they wanted to get away. Uh, Had she actually not been found by us, I don't know if she'd have been able to find her way home. So yeah, she got picked up by Border Patrol. She's going to be deported. But that was a way better option than being one of the 200 at least bodies they end up finding in the desert every year. And keep in mind, I've done this. We had a mission where we found 70 pounds of methamphetamines on somebody that was coming over. And I'm just a very small part of that. This is the fourth time I've been to the border, my first time in Arizona, completely mm-hmm. different terrain than my prior in Texas. Texas, by the way, I was there under President Obama. So the Guard's mission on the border is nothing new.
1: But border apprehensions are near a 50 year low. So when you're talking about an emergency and you have border state governors tell you that's just not what they're seeing, how do you justify sending as much as 6,000 active duty troops?
9: Well, what I didn't see is a low in apprehension. I mean, there were there were beyond... That's according to Customs of, and Border Patrol. That's fine. That's fine. I'm saying, what, uh, from my experience, there were many, many groups that we would see on technology with camera, radar, or something like that, that we could not go address because there were not enough Border Patrol agents. These agents sometimes left to take a truck and then walk two miles through terrible terrain to get to these groups, only to have them run while they're already exhausted and they get lost in that chaos. So is it down maybe part of that's because now they've understood how to abuse the asylum uh, laws in this country you have a lot of folks from countries that are not declaring asylum in mexico where they should be because it's the first country where they can actually declare safety and coming here they've learned how to do that so now you have this crisis basically of which i don't think the actual uh, migration or the calling for asylum is in and of itself a crisis but you now have a massive amount of people doing that but i'll tell you what i saw was a lot of people coming over the border, a lot of drugs in the border, and a lot of human trafficking. I mean, these coyotes that would get paid a lot of money to bring groups over and then desert them to save their own backside. So uh, am I understanding,
1: with the the picture you're painting, am I understanding that you believe the president's declaration of a national emergency is constitutional and that you will not vote to try to block it?
9: Yeah, I won't vote to try to block it. Look, I, I wish this would have happened a different way. Uh, I voted for comprehensive immigration reform. I think Republicans and Democrats both have good ideas on immigration. But you think this is constitutional
1: adopt. for the president I to do. bypass do. the power of the purse yes. strings of Congress? Yes,
9: because in this case, like I said at the beginning, if this was just about immigration, I would disagree. I do think this is a security threat. It's a security threat with the amount of drugs coming over the border and the human trafficking that I've seen. And, and again... In Arizona, I think they said last year there were 200 bodies at least that they found in the desert. Mm-hmm. It is not compassionate, as your prior guest said, to basically say we're not going to do border security because, in essence, would encourage people to come across the border. It's compassionate to say do it the right way. Do it, We're going to have a secure border. We're going to have an immigration system that is welcoming, which I fully believe in, doing it the right way instead of forcing, in some cases, very innocent people to pay the drug cartels, to pay the cartels money, to coyote them into a very dangerous part of this country mm-hmm. and then abandon them when the, when the heat gets too bad. Well, well,
1: there's plenty of debate about whether that would actually stop demand for drugs or stop people That's from right. trying to come across. But let me ask you about something else I know you're concerned about, and that is Syria. Is 400 mm-hmm. U.S. troops enough to leave behind in Syria to counter all the threats that they are going to be asked to face?
9: Well, I certainly wish it was more than that. Uh, I am glad that the president has reversed this decision. Uh, I think 2,000 troops was a great example, frankly, of how we're doing war in the 21st century, which is level, which is legitimizing the local p- folks and using our special forces to give them the combat power necessary. Leaving that amount of troops there is good for blocking Iran's position in Syria, for getting intelligence from folks on the ground to see any rise of ISIS that inevitably is going to come again. I wish it was more, but I am glad that the president reversed his decision. Syria is a mess. Iran's position there is a mess, and I actually worry about the future, not just of Syria, but the future of a potential regional conflict in yeah. this area with all these folks there.
1: But it, the concern there is that, that the special operators who are, who are there right now are going to then be transitioned to some kind of uh, murky term, a peacekeeping force, and that they'll be facing an inordinate amount of risk. Uh, the Pentagon seemed caught flat-footed by this declaration.
9: Yeah, look, I think there's definitely more risk. Um, Our special ops are really good. I doubt they're going to be going out and doing combat patrols, more leveling, uh, using the local forces to get done what they need to get done, intelligence gathering. We'll have great air support for them. Uh, But, yeah, anytime you have a smaller group there, uh, they are put in danger. There is no country that would be dumb enough to attack our forces there. But, of course, we've seen even recently with ISIS – Uh, their boldness in attacking American military. That's why we have to stay on the offense. There's going to be an ISIS-2 someday. There's going to be an Al-Qaeda-3. It's a generational fight. It's not just through war. It's giving hope to the next generation of folks in the Middle East to reject that ideology within their own religion.
1: Congressman, uh, good to talk to you. Plenty more to get to, but we have to leave it there for today.
9: You bet. Take care.
1: We'll be right back with our political panel.
9: What's
2: your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love.
1: We want to bring in now our panel for some political analysis. Edward Wong is a diplomatic and international correspondent for The New York Times. Susan Page is the Washington Bureau Chief of USA Today. Jamal Simmons is a host on Hill TV and a Democratic strategist. And Ben Dominich is the founder and publisher of The Federalist. A lot to get to with all of you. Uh, Susan, 2020 and the picture that we heard, Steve Bannon, the longtime White House strategist and, and ally for President Trump, really sketched out a number of interesting things, including the fact that he thinks there could be a primary challenger to the president from within the Republican Party.
10: Yes, he said there definitely will. He said it will be symbolic. But, you know, symbolic challenges to incumbent presidents can be really damaging. Ask George H.W. Bush, ask Jimmy Carter the impact of having a primary challenge, even one that doesn't take the nomination away from you. Uh, I think this is a subject that should be probably of more concern to the White House than it is because there's not really a question at this time that President Trump will retain the Republican nomination. But these primary fights can be brutal.
1: And Ben, you, you had uh, Governor Hogan indicate that he thinks there should be a primary challenger. Yeah,
11: but I don't think that Bannon is correct about how this would play out. The fact is that, unlike a situation with George H.W. Bush, polling consistently shows that the Republican Party is overwhelmingly in favor of the president, that they back him overwhelmingly. Sure, there could be a symbolic challenge in some way, but there's unlikely to be one that could get between the president and the base of the Republican Party, which is why Pat Buchanan's challenge, for instance, in 92 was so damaging to President Bush.
12: Yeah, here's what's so weird about it to me, right? Usually when somebody runs against an incumbent president, they run from the ideological fringe of that party, or the ideological wing of that party, right? Ted Kennedy ran from the liberal left. Uh, Pat Buchanan ran from kind of the Trump right is really what it is, um, right? But this would be kind of a centrist challenge to a president. I don't know that we've ever seen someone run from the center against a president. What may occur is that that person's job may be to help organize who the anti-Trump forces are inside the Republican Party and identify that person for the Democrats, that those may be potential Democratic voters that could be won over.
1: And then there's a the question for the Democrats of where's your center,
0: right?
12: <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: because we haven't seen Joe Biden, who's expected to declare jump in or, or any of the other names. You had Governor Inslee here saying, oh maybe this week I'll make a decision. Um, and you have that extraordinary Time magazine cover this cover this week reflecting what we're seeing, which is just about everyone is running. Um, what do you make of the field? Where is the center?
12: Well, here's why Democrats should be thankful to Bernie Sanders, because Bernie Sanders showed that there was a real passion on the Democratic left to find somebody who was going to not argue about how much we should cut taxes for the wealthy, but maybe we should be raising taxes on the wealthy, or maybe we should be trying to figure out how do we cover more people with Medicare or get more expanded uh, daycare. So he's opened up that entire lane. Now, what could also be true is No, Facebook wasn't the first social media company. There was MySpace and there was Friendster before that. Bernie Sanders might be the MySpace and Friendster of the Democratic Party, right, where he's helped show us that there's this this path, and then what comes after that is a Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren or somebody like that who really takes advantage of the opening. But the effect
11: of that has been that you've had all of these candidates, even including ones who could run to the center, tacking to the left in significant ways. I mean, the fact is that the majority of the Democratic cast endorsed the Green New Deal. The majority of the Democratic cast is completely uh, backing uh, abortion policies on the state level that are widely out of sync, not just with Americans, but with pro-choice Americans, polling indicates. That leaves an opening for the president to do the kinds of things that he did in the State of the Union, which is to frame the Democrats as the party of the extreme. He's going to continue to do that, and that's going to be, frankly, a way to keep those types of centrists that you talked about within the GOP, who might be open to a Democratic candidacy, away from them and loyal to the, the well, Republican there's, Party. There's, there's-, there's
10: a ideological debate in the Democratic Party, no question. There, there are centrists there, and there are people who endorse the Green New Deal But one thing that unites the Democratic Party is that they want to win in 2020. And when you go out and talk to voters, there is no issue that they care about more than that one.
1: Ed, I want to ask you, one thing that we see lacking on on many of the resumes of the candidates is foreign policy experience. You haven't heard a lot of views of what they think America's role in the world should be. Crisis in, in Venezuela is sort of forcing people to take a stand. Possibly this North Korea summit may force some of these candidates to describe Uh, foreign policy. Uh, What is it that you're seeing out there?
13: Well, I think that there are certain issues that candidates will be forced to address. Uh, Security is one of them. And so they'll uh, criticize Trump, I think, for his take on North Korea and for the fact that we haven't made much progress On North Korea and its nuclear program since the first summit. And they'll question why we're holding these series of summits when uh, Kim hasn't promised, hasn't uh, met the promises that he set out. Um, The other question, another big question is China and trade. And I think that Mm -hmm. we'll see uh, talk about whether his approach to China and to the trade deficit and to other issues related to the economy is the right one.
1: And you have that March 2nd deadline looming uh, in terms of the president ramping up tariffs, potentially, and that extraordinary change in the Oval Office where you saw a divide between the president and his chief negotiator over laying out the terms in front of the Chinese.
13: Right. My read on that was that um, Lighthizer, the chief negotiator, is Nervous that the president will undermine the American negotiating position by pushing back on the idea of what an MOU means. And I think there's right, and I think there is debate among experts about whether the president's right or whether Lighthizer was right in that. But um, but having the president sort of go right against the trade negotiator in front of. Um, the t- television cameras is not good for the American negotiating position. My, my,
12: first job <laughs> <in
1: diplomatically>. <laughs> right, my first
12: job in Washington was working for the U.S. trade representative Mickey Cantor and I just cannot believe Bill Clinton would have ever upbraided Mickey Cantor in front of the Chinese negotiator and the entire um, public. Usually the, the Chinese you want negotiator, negotiator laughed. Negotiator. Yeah, usually you want your negotiator to have the strongest hand possible when they go into the deal. That's not what he's doing. One other point, you mentioned people who aren't talking about foreign policy. I think Kamala Harris yesterday uh, came out for temporary protective status as for Venezuelans uh, in this particular crisis that's happening down there.
10: You know, I think that the exchange that you saw uh, over memorandums of understanding uh, in China is a little, was a little bit of a red flag to the diplomats who are concerned about the summit mm-hmm. with North Korea because there is concern that the president does not pay attention to what he sees as diplomatic niceties, that diplomats see as absolutely crucial, uh, and some concern that you heard articulated in your interview with Senator Markey, that he will agree to a deal that looks good in the moment, helps him in the moment, but doesn't isn't really sustainable, doesn't have verification, offers, a chi- offers the North Koreans too much for what they give us. It, this might be a sign of something to come. The North
11: Koreans are not going to give up their nuclear program. They just aren't. You um, agree
10: with US intelligence,
1: though. I, I, <laughs> I, I,
11: I mean, the, the thing to understand is just that, I mean, you can, when it comes to this summit, you can take the under. This is not going to be something that produces uh, a massive breakthrough. Uh, It is going to be something that is going to be spun in the public, uh, you know, in a lot of different ways. But just in terms of what our expectations should be, they have to be tempered by the reality of what's going to be uh, really on the table when it comes to uh, the North Korean on offer. And frankly, they're in the driver's seat.
1: And Ed, you had some reporting on this. We have the Secretary of State out there on a number of TV networks today, lowering expectations. You say, now that he's doing a publicly, you're reporting on what he's saying privately. And what is that?
13: Right. He's saying privately that uh, within at least in his time in office, maybe the president's time in office, they might not get to full denuclearization. He tells us to Korea experts and to others that he talks to off the record. Um, and I think that, that's, as Ben says, that might be the realistic outlook on where we can get to with North Korea. There might not might be very minimal work on the nuclear program. There might be some work, but not, near, but not full denuclearization. And the big question that we have to ask is whether – Uh, At what point would the United States publicly accept a nuclear North Korea and acknowledge that um, just as it accepts Israel, Pakistan, and other countries having nuclear weapons?
1: Normalization of North Korea, no longer a pariah state.
13: Right. Well, Trump did say he fell in love. He and Kim fell in love, so maybe (laughs) we'll have that going forward.
1: Yeah, and you had the odds at, what, 60 percent of what the U.S.'s demands they'll likely get?
13: Right. That's what Pompeo has told some people. That That seems... Pretty high, right? I mean, North Korea has around 30 to 60 nuclear warheads already right now, and every six months it makes enough fissile material for another warhead. So it's it's it, experts think it's going forward with the program right now, even as diplomacy is continuing, and it will be hard to get it fully dismantled.
11: We should consider, of course, the withdrawal from the INF as being. Part of this conversation as well. I know that that was mostly framed. The be- be- uh, agreement. With yes, Russians. I I know that that was mostly framed in the context of our relationship with Russia. But the overwhelming agreement on the part of our European allies is that Russia has been in violation of this for years anyway. Mm-hmm. And much of the INF is actually restricting us when it comes to what we can do vis-a-vis the Asian situation, both with China and with North Korea. It could be something that could be interesting potentially down the road in terms of the types of of uh, responses that we could put in place that would have been banned under the INF. And
1: Susan last word to you a real meat grinder is how steve bannon described the next four to five months yeah what should we be girding ourselves for
10: this is i mean we say this every week but this is really going to be a crucial week we're going to have north korea summit and a split screen with michael cohen testifying before congress and we've got bob Mueller standing in the doorway with his report to come out soon it's it's going to be a remarkable few months it's going to be a remarkable week or two ahead
12: Let's not forget the underlying question that Mueller has, which is, did the president collude with the Russians?
10: We got to leave it there. And we will be back in
1: a moment with a report on the Catholic Church's Sex Abuse Summit.
14: I used to think that all diet and weight loss plans were the same. Well, not anymore, because I found Noom. Noom is a new and totally different approach to losing weight and getting healthy that uses psychology and small goals to help change your habits so it's easy to lose the weight and keep it off for good. Noom combines the power of technology with real human support, offering as little or as much help as you want along the way. And since Noom is an app, it's always with you and easy to use, which makes it super easy to stay on track and reach your goals. Plus, it's really simple to get started. Just go online, answer a few quick questions, and they'll create a personalized program just for you. Noom helped me lose my old way of thinking about food and dieting. So what do you have to lose? Visit Noom.com slash podcast, N-O-O-M dot slash podcast, and start your 14-day trial today. Like they say, change your habits, change your mind, and change for good with
1: Noom. Over the past four days, senior bishops gathered at the Vatican for a landmark summit on clergy sex abuse convened by Pope Francis. It comes after years of controversy for the Catholic Church. CBS News correspondent Seth Doan is in Rome with what was decided.
4: Pope Francis spoke of the abuse of power that lies at the center of clerical sex abuse, turning priests into tools of Satan.
14: The brutality
4: of this worldwide phenomenon becomes all the more grave and scandalous in the Church, the pontiff said, for it is utterly incompatible with its moral authority and ethical credibility. Francis widened the scope of the problem past clerical sex abuse to include the many threats to minors, including child pornography and child soldiers,
14: and added no
4: abuse should be covered up, as was often the case in the past. The pontiff presented a list of eight so-called best practices. Points included sparing no effort in protecting children, purifying the church in part through training in seminaries, strengthening rules, supporting victims, and being aware of threats in the digital world. The Pope's speech today, can you give it a grade? Uh, Disappointing. Incomplete. Uh, You know, I was hoping for something more pastoral, uh, something more forceful. Father Thomas Reese is a senior analyst with Religion News Service. Did we learn anything new, anything concrete in this? I don't think that people in America, if they looked at the speech, would find anything new. Uh, Remember, this meeting was primarily focused on parts of the world where they don't think they have a crisis. Rules are already in place for priests, so one of the big questions here was how to close the loopholes in laws for the higher ranking bishops, accused among other things of carrying out or covering up abuse. How do we hold accountable bishops? That's what American people are. Where's the system? Who, how do we punish bishops that don't do what they're supposed to do? Do we have any new answers? Not, not at this meeting, not yet. All along, Margaret, the Vatican has stressed that follow-up will be key. And in a press conference this afternoon, they told us to expect some more details in the coming weeks, including a document written by the Pope and a handbook for bishops about how to handle cases of abuse.
1: Seth Doan in Rome. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. I'll see you this week for North Korea summit coverage from Vietnam. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Missouri Republican Senator Roy Blunt, Massachusetts Democratic Senator Ed Markey, Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger of Illinois, and Democratic Governors Michelle Lujan Grisham of New Mexico and Jay Inslee of Washington State. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can...
0: If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey